10 stars. Check out this review on gut and digestion from Heart and Soil Supplements. I wish I could give gut and digestion from Heart and Soil Supplements 10 stars. I wanted to wait until I finished the bottle to write a review, says Chantel G., but I'm so ecstatic over the results in just one week. I've had IBS-C for constipation for over 15 years and was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis last May. After one week, my bowel movements have improved dramatically. Zero straining, they're becoming more solid, and there's a full clear out. I never thought I'd be happy over poop, but when you struggle for half of your life, finally becoming regular literally makes me want to cry. Happy tears, of course. My bloat is gone. I don't look six months pregnant anymore. I'm eating more. I have more energy and mental clarity and generally just feel happier. If these are results that I'm getting in a week, I can't wait to see where I will be in one month. I'm so stoked about that one. That one's incredible. It's awesome to see gut and digestion, which is our desiccated organ supplements with intestines and tripe, the digestive organs, helping Chantal so much. You can find all of our products at heartandsoil.co. That's heartandsoil.co. Our mission is to help you reclaim your birthright to radical health. And we do that by helping you get organs, nature's most nutrient-rich food, grass-fed, grass-finished, regeneratively raised animals that are desiccated, freeze-dried, exclusively from New Zealand and encapsulated into gelatin capsules. It's only packaged in glass because plastic is bullshit. Check us out, heartandsoil.co. On this week's podcast, I wanted to do another solo episode where I just broke down from A to Z, soup to nuts, basic nuts and bolts of how to do an animal-based diet. I started off why you do an animal-based diet, what an animal-based diet is, a little bit about my journey from paleo to carnivore to animal-based, and then into some high-level science about vegetables, why I think they're problematic for many people, why you might want to not eat vegetables, and why I think an animal-based diet of organs, meat, fruit, honey, and raw dairy is the most evolutionarily consistent, the most species-appropriate diet for humans on the planet, and might explain why so many people are thriving on this type of diet. There are benefits to any type of intentional diet. Cutting out garbage foods like seed oils and processed sugars is great no matter what you do, but I think that vegan diets are very nutrient deficient and too high in plant toxins for humans to be healthy or thriving on them long-term. A carnivore diet of meat and organs is fantastic. It's very low antigen, but leaving out carbohydrates led to issues for me and many other people with electrolyte maintenance. I talk about why in this podcast. I don't think a full carnivore diet is ideal, but doing a carnivore diet taught me a lot about the dangers of plant foods. And then using that same sort of thinking, that same sort of paradigm, it led me to think maybe fruit is okay for humans because it's the least toxic plant food, the least offended. Maybe plants want this to get eaten. I dig into all of this in this podcast and I give you the how-to how much protein, how much carbohydrate, how much fat you should be eating, what foods you should be eating. This podcast will serve as a start here if you are interested in doing an animal-based diet. It's like carnivore, but it includes carbohydrates, least toxic plant foods. I really think this is how humans thrive. I hope this will be helpful for all of you. So that is what we are gonna talk about this week in the podcast. And as a bonus, I went down a little rabbit hole on creatine, which I think is a very fascinating one when it comes to improving performance and gives us a clear indication of the optimal amount of meat for humans. So check that out in the middle of this podcast. This podcast is free, but the sponsors make it possible. I want to give a shout out to them and thank them for all of their support. Our first sponsor this week is White Oak Pastures. This is a regenerative farm in Bluffton, Georgia, really the OGs, the original gangsters. If farmers could be gangsters, Original gangsters, meaning kind, 
compassionate, forward-thinking gangsters. The folks at White Oak Pastures would be original gangsters. The farm's been in the family for 120 years, six generations. Will and Jenny Harris are amazing. They're really good people. Will had the foresight, the prescience to take the farm regenerative 25 years ago, and they've never looked back. The soil there is so nutrient-rich, so dark, so full of carbon, so able to sequester rain during an event that there is so little runoff. The grass is green. The cows are happy. This is how we should be farming all over the country. And it's how I want to feed my friends, my family, myself. Regeneratively raised, grass-fed, grass-finished animals are amazing. They have beef. They have lamb. They also have pork. They have soy and corn-free chicken. They have all kinds of amazing stuff. Check them out, whiteoakpastures.com. Use the code CARNIVOREMD for 10% off your first order. I also want to give a shout out to 8sleep.com. You can use the code CARNIVOREMD there to save $150 on the Pod Pro cover. And sleep is huge for me. I recently took a trip to uh, the middle of Costa Rica and stayed in some Airbnbs, and it was horrible because the beds suck. I'm too hot in the beds in the middle of the night, and struggling with temperature is horrible. Getting good sleep is huge. And so, leaving my home and what I have created there with an eight sleep pod pro cover, the perfect sleep experience is a pain in the butt for me, and I hate it. So, what's awesome about the pod pro is that it's the most advanced solution in the market for thermoregulation. They have dynamic heating or cooling biometric tracking. It'll even do your heart rate variability. You can add it to cover any mattress. It starts sleeping as cool as 55 or as hot as 110. I don't know why you'd want to sleep in a sauna, but you can if you want. Each side of the bed is independent and they'll check everything. It's like AI for your bed. Proof is in the pudding. Eight sleep users fall asleep 32% faster, 40% less sleep interruptions, overall more restful sleep. With 30% more deep sleep, you can be confident your mind and body are moving through the restorative sleep stages, vital for physical recovery, hormone regulation, mental clarity. It's amazing. I feel like when I get good sleep, I show up as the best person in my life. Check them out, 8sleep.com forward slash carnivoremd to check out the pod pro cover and save 150 bucks at checkout. They currently ship within the US, Canada, and the United Kingdom. That's also known as Britain. I also believe that we should know our hormones. Talk about optimizing your hormones with good sleep. You better know what your hormones are doing in general, whether you're a man or a woman. If you're a man, did you know that men's healthy sperm counts are dropping 50% in the last 40 years? 40 years? I also said, I almost said hen's healthy sperm counts. Well, hen's healthy sperm counts may be decreasing too, although I don't know if hens have sperm. Uh, but anyway, men's healthy sperm counts are decreasing 50% in the last 40 years. You got to know what your hormones are. Let's get checked and help you do this at home. It's in-house. You don't have to go to your doctor, which is a pain in the butt. You can save 20% off by going to trylgctrylgc.com using the code CarnivoreMD. They're democratizing lab testing, and I really appreciate it. Here's how it works. You choose your test online, delivered to you in discrete packaging, next day delivery. You collect your sample, activate it, send it off in secure envelope. It arrives the next day. Within two to five days, you get results. If you have your hormones tested, you'll get five hormonal levels for men, testosterone, SHBG, that's sex hormone binding globulin, prolactin, estrogen, free androgen index. Once your results are available, they're reviewed by a physician. A nurse contacts you for a consult over the phone. It's amazing. It's super easy. I did it at home. They also have inflammatory markers, lipids, comprehensive metabolic panels, complete blood counts, et cetera. They're CLIA approved, the highest level ranking. Go to trylgc, T-R-Y-L-G-C, as in letsgetchecked.com, front slash carnivoremd to get 20% off your order and get your labs checked. It's important to know what's going on in there, you guys. I'll do an episode on blood work really soon. 
Uh, last but not least, I want to give a shout out to the folks at Juve, J-O-O-V-V. You may know them. They are the leaders in red light therapy. They really were the people that really premiered this, that made it sleek and uh, affordable and pioneering it for in-home use. So they're the leading brand. They pioneered the technology, the first to isolate red and near infrared light. And it's amazing. So I use my Juve at night. It helps me kind of wind down. And they have new devices. New Juves are coming. They're already here. They're sleeker, they're lighter. All the same power you've come to affect, expect, not affect, expect. And really cool new features like recovery plus mode, which uses pulsed infrared, near infrared light to give yourselves an extra healing boost, optimizing the recovery process. They also have ambient mode, uses a lower light intensity to support sleep and circadian rhythms. Look, infrared, red lights are really valuable for humans. You need these in your life. And a lot of us, well, I am thankful to live in Costa Rica, but a lot of you guys I know live in places where you don't get a lot of sunlight for a lot of the year. I think getting the red light extra can be really, really helpful. So if you're looking for a new Juve, check them out, J-O-O-V-V.com front slash Paul. Use the code Paul. You'll get an exclusive discount on their generation 3.0 devices, limited time only, exclusions apply. On to the podcast, my friends. What is up, Truth Seekers? Welcome to another edition of the Fundamental Health Podcast. I realized that I really didn't have an episode that was just animal-based diet, how to do it, how to start, soup to nuts, A to Z, simplified, a little bit of detail, but basically how do you start, how do you create an animal-based diet for yourself? So I wanted to do that in this week's episode of the podcast. This will also live on my website at carnivoremd.com, where it will serve as an introduction, as a start here part of the how to do an animal-based diet. Let's start with a little bit of background. Why in the world would you do an animal-based diet? Perhaps even before that, what is an animal-based diet? An animal-based diet is a term that I coined with essentially Joe Rogan on the first podcast that we did together. We were talking at the beginning of the podcast and he said, animal-based. And I said, yeah, I love that term. I'd heard it before, but I wanted to make the word animal-based, the phrase animal-based mean something similar to plant-based. If you think about a plant-based diet, which hopefully many of you don't, but a plant-based diet is a diet that's based around plants, but might actually include some animal foods from time to time. That's the loose definition of a plant-based diet. Often plant-based diets are not entirely comprised of plants. They often have some animal foods. So I thought, okay, I was coming from a place of a carnivore diet for almost two years in my own life. I wrote a book called The Carnivore Code, and I was transitioning to including some plant foods, but not all plant foods. Obviously, most of you listening to this know which plant foods I include and which I don't, but I will get into all of that later on in this podcast. And so I wanted the phrase to point a little more toward, okay, let's center a diet around animal foods. Let's think about animal foods first as if it were carnivore-ish. But let's think about which plant foods we might include intelligently, which plant foods we might include to mirror the preferences of our ancestors as best we can know from anthropology, hunter-gatherer lives, et cetera. And looking at the medical literature, looking at the nutritional literature, are there some indications that certain plant foods are less toxic from humans if we decide to include plant foods in the first place? So that is what an animal-based diet is. An animal-based diet is a diet that is based around animal foods, that being organs and meat, and bone broth and bone meal or bone marrow, right? All of these pieces of the animal from nose to tail with some additional plant foods that do not make up the majority of the diet or really aren't the focus of the diet, but can be included for color, variety, texture, et cetera. So that's an animal-based diet. And the attention here, the really the, in, 
the, the paradigm is pointing toward the notion that as humans, we've treasured these animal foods, these meat and these organs primarily centrally for the majority of our existence, really for the entirety of our existence as homo sapiens. You can go back and actually look at human brain sizes and pre-human brain sizes and hominids, specifically habilines, that is homo habilis, leading to homo erectus, and see that when you transition from Australopithecus to homo habilis, there was a massive increase in brain size, really a change in the slope of the growth of the brain as indicated by the cranial vault size, and then on to homo erectus, et cetera, into homo sapiens, most recently 350,000 years ago, et cetera. So what made that change? Pretty clear evidence that, that was hunting, that was eating meat. There's fossil evidence of bones that are damaged by hunting tools. There's fossilized evidence of hunting points, bifacial tools, Acheulean tools, mass animal graves, cut marks on bones from around 1.8 million years ago when the Havilines were transitioning to Homo erectus, and even further back, maybe 2.5 years ago when Australopithecus was transitioning to Homo habilis. So meat and organs were, I think, there's a strong argument to be made. They were a huge catalyst, if not the single greatest catalyst for the growth of the human brain. Some like anthropologist Richard Rangham from Harvard had, have argued that cooking was a major influence in the growth of the human brain. He argues that that was a major influence around 1.8 million years ago with the transition from Homo habilis to Homo erectus. I'm less convinced by this because we're already eating meat. And it's pretty clear that if humans want to eat cooked meat or raw meat, you still get basically the same nutrients. Now, the same cannot be true of plant foods when you cook the plant foods. Uh, some of the nutrients are more bioavailable, especially in starches. So cooking may have influenced human access to calories from starches, but I don't think that access to starches was what caused our brains to grow. Perhaps more calories was an effective improvement in our life, but I don't think there were any unique nutrients in cooked starches throughout our evolution. I have trouble believing that that fire was a major, major catalyst for that. I think it was probably just the cooking of meat or the fact that we were safer because we could defend our territory. We could move more freely. We could get more food by hunting animals more readily with fire. We could hunt them at night. We could protect our camps at night. We could use fire for all sorts of things. I really believe that hunting and access to animal foods is the major trigger rather than the cooking itself. And as we see, many people thrive on completely raw diets now. It's kind of a fad. I've experimented with raw meat. We'll get to that later in the podcast. I like the taste of cooked meat. I eat some of my organs raw, but mostly I cook my meat every day. But if you want to eat raw meat, you can do it pretty readily, um, as we'll talk about in a little bit. So why an animal-based diet is preceded by the question of what is, is what is an animal-based diet? And that answer is, it is a diet that is consisting of no animal foods, which is organs and meat, also bones, tendons, bone marrow, et cetera, along with the least toxic plant foods, which I consider to be fruit. We'll talk a little bit about why later in the podcast. Honey is a food that lies at the intersection of animal and plant foods. It's made by bees from plants. Is it an animal food? Is it plant food? Do vegans eat it? Do vegans not? I don't really care. It's delicious and has many benefits, including carbohydrates, along with other things that have been demonstrated and that I've talked about in previous podcasts on honey. And then I think that many of us can tolerate dairy when it's from a good source. I've found for myself that I've been able to tolerate raw dairy here more recently from raw goat's milk, which I ferment into kefir. Some people say kefir. That sounds crazy to me. I think it's kefir. If you know the actual pronunciation, let me know if I'm mispronouncing it. Anyway, raw dairy has many benefits because calcium is beneficial in the human diet. I think that's pretty clear. Many benefits to calcium, binding oxalates in the gut, calcium turnover every day in our bones, just all kinds of benefits to calcium in the human diet. So organs, meat, fruit, honey, raw dairy, that is an animal-based diet. Why? 
because it seems to be the diet that our ancestors would seek intuitively and have sought preferentially for millions of years, if we consider Homo habilis and Homo erectus to be our ancestors, or if we're just thinking about Homo sapiens, then hundreds of thousands of years in pure human evolution. But intuitively, you probably know this thinking about it. If you are in the woods hunting with your friends, what are you going to seek? You're going to seek animals. You're going to eat them from nose to tail. That is incontrovertible. Hunter-gatherers always seek animals first and foremost. They celebrate animals. I spent time with a Hadza, with my friend Anthony Gustin. That was very clear. Animals were the difference between life and death for them. Animals, consumption of animals was the difference between celebration and famine or celebration and sadness. They dream about animals. Animals are the key. What do they want after animals? They want honey, which is available in Tanzania for much of the year, depending on which species of bee you are seeking honey from. There are stingless bees. I recently got some stingless bee honey here in Costa Rica. It's delicious. And there are bees that sting. They both make slightly different tasting honey. After honey, they're looking for fruit. That's intuitive. This is what children seek. We seek colorful, sweet things. And nutritional pundits may point to that and say, see, we're seeking junk food. No, this is because these foods are less toxic for us. Plants will put defense chemicals in the fruit, but those defense chemicals decrease as the fruit ripens. Plants are giving us a clear signal. Plants are so intelligent. They are telling us, hey, here's my fruit. It's colorful. It has seeds in it. I'm going to make the seeds very toxic. Don't eat the seeds. Don't break the seeds unless you want to have your digestion inhibited or GI issues or nausea, whatever. Eat my fruit. Don't destroy the seeds. Make sure the seeds get to the next generation in your poop. That's the intention of plants. That's what works well for humans. Many of the seeds are not even consumed by humans in any way, shape, or form. We easily avoid them. We pick them out. We throw them on the ground. In Tanzania with the Hadza, we ate the baobab fruit, which is from something that is colloquially called the tree of life there. It's a dry fruit, almost like a cotton candy type of fruit inside that's very uh, acidic and not bitter, but sour. It's very high in vitamin C. And they don't eat the seeds unless they're absolutely starving. You can easily pick the fruit around the seeds. This happens throughout many cultures uh, around the world. Seeds are discarded. We can talk about nuts a little later in the podcast, but fruit is clearly sought by humans. Seasonally, it's very available by the equator, which is clearly where Homo sapiens arose. Pre-Homo sapiens evolutions of, uh, I guess, Neanderthals, Denisovans throughout the world, they had left Africa before Homo sapiens arose 350,000 years ago. So in other parts of the world, perhaps Neanderthals, Denisovans were not as apt to get fruit year round at Northern latitudes, but our Homo sapien ancestors do appear to have arisen in equatorial Africa and stayed there until maybe 60, 70, 80,000 years ago. And there in the equator, there's fruit all year round, depending on what type of fruit and when it's coming into season. I live near the equator now, and I can tell you firsthand that different times of the year, different types of, different types of fruit become available. So some people will say, but Paul, we didn't have access to fruit year round. I'm pretty sure we did up until pretty recently in human evolution. And humans seem to do well with fruit year round. If you want to do fruit seasonally, that's fine. But I think that most of us can do well with fruit year round and probably would have sought fruit year round based on our equatorial origins in the past. So organs, meat, fruit, honey, and then more recently, raw dairy with the advent of animal husbandry. Dairy is a very beneficial food. So many good nutrients in there, vitamin K2, choline. Again, calcium is a central part of human physiology. We lose calcium every day. We should probably replace it. Calcium binds oxalate in the gut. There are many studies 
with colon cancer that show that in calcium replete diets, there's a lower incidence of colon cancer. Animal models of colon cancer often must make the mice or rats calcium deficient to induce colon cancers. Calcium is probably a beneficial mineral to have in the human body. Just like everything, it needs to be balanced. It should probably be taken in food form. I'm not a fan of any supplements. We'll get into that a little later in the podcast too. Why don't you just get your nutrients from food? That makes so much more sense to me, more bioavailable, essentially bioidentical, what we've been doing as humans for millions and millions of years. So in summary, an animal-based diet is based, is born out of my original interest in a carnivore diet, which was a diet that was entirely based on organs and meat and animal fat and salt. Many benefits to that diet, improvement in mental clarity, improvement in mood, improvement in autoimmune conditions for me. Long-term, as many of you may know, I ran into electrolyte issues related to long-term ketosis. Short-term ketosis, probably beneficial for humans. Long-term ketosis, pretty clearly harmful for humans, declining hormones, electrolyte issues. The actions of insulin are very important at the level of the kidney for proper sodium retention and other electrolytes. So many people in the ketogenic world run into electrolyte issues and just eat more and more salt. They just eat higher and higher doses of electrolytes. They'll take elect they'll take magnesium, they'll take potassium, they'll take sodium. It gets ridiculous. Just eat some carbohydrates and your body will have an insulin bump, a healthy insulin bump. A postprandial spike in insulin is not a damaging thing for humans. Do not fear postprandial insulin spikes. You don't want insulin resistance, but a postprandial insulin spike is completely healthy. That is normal human physiology. And it results in proper electrolyte maintenance because the actions of insulin are essential at the level of the kidney for that degree of electrolyte maintenance. You can see that from this study, which I will address a little bit later in the podcast as well. Insulin's impact on renal sodium transport and blood pressure in health, obesity, and diabetes. They say here that insulin has been shown to have anti-natriuretic actions in humans and animal models. Naturesis is the loss of sodium. So insulin is resulting in retention of sodium. That's normal human physiology that's important. In this review, we present the current state of understanding with regard to the regulation of the major renal sodium transporters by insulin in the kidney. Several groups using primarily cell culture have demonstrated that insulin can directly increase the activity of the epithelial sodium channel, the sodium phosphate co-transporter, the sodium hydrogen exchanger type three, and the sodium potassium ATPase. If you're chronically in ketosis, and you're not having a postprandial insulin spike, let's call it a bump, because when I say spike, people get worried about that term. If you're not having a postprandial insulin bump because you're chronically in ketosis, your body is wasting sodium. Sodium is a very valuable mineral, and the balance of sodium with other minerals, magnesium, calcium, potassium, is critical. When you lose too much sodium, you lose too many of the other nutrients. When you lose too much sodium, you lose too many of the other minerals at the level of the kidney, and thus you get long-term ketogenic side effects, electrolyte issues manifesting as muscle cramping, heart palpitations, sleep disturbances, and often hormonal disruption as well due to long-term ketosis, which probably affects gene, which probably affects gene transcription of many genes in the androgen or estrogen cascades. I'll mention something as an anecdote here that I don't know if I've ever shared before. When I was probably a year into the carnivore diet, I began having really bad episodes of hypnagogic jerks. That is a sensation of falling as you are falling asleep. 
The hypnagogic is a word that means going to sleep. Hypnopompic is a word that means waking up. So as I was falling asleep, I would have these massive muscle jerks as if I was falling. And this is usually tied to electrolyte imbalance, magnesium deficiency in humans. At the time, I couldn't connect the dots. I was seeing other benefits. I was so interested in eliminating plants from my diet that I got a little bit too myopic. We all make these mistakes. We all learn. We all evolve. That's at least the hope. Some people don't evolve. Some people become very calcified and ossified and don't allow themselves to keep learning. And that is what we call dogma, sacrificing curiosity for the sake of consistency. Nevertheless, I had very bad hypnagogic jerks to the point that I was on my, really, at my wit's end. I would try and fall asleep, jerk, wake up, try and fall asleep, have a muscle jerk, a sensation I was falling, wake up again. This would happen 10 or more times on some nights before I would fall asleep. Eventually, once I realized that it was related to probably magnesium deficiency, which had its roots in a foundational sodium deficiency, which had its roots in a chronically low insulin. And I added back some carbohydrates. Things began to correct gradually. And here we are today, but I'll talk about that story more in a moment. Some have suggested that at the time, my problems with a pure carnivore diet may have been due to my overconsumption of organs. To me, this is absurd. I know so many people who have not eaten anywhere near the amount of organs that I was eating on my carnivore diet and had similar problems with long-term ketosis, electrolyte issues, heart palpitations, sleep problems, hormonal issues, et cetera. So for anyone to suggest that my carnivore diet didn't work, quote unquote, because I was eating too many organs is a little ridiculous, but there's a lot of dogmatism in the carnivore community. I'm happy to not be a part of that anymore. Nevertheless, let's move on. So let's talk about how I construct an animal-based diet and how you might construct your animal-based diet. Immediately, as you begin to think about an animal-based diet or even a carnivore diet, what you will appreciate very quickly is that this type of diet doesn't have any vegetables. And I want to show you why I don't think vegetables are great for humans. If we think about this intuitively, high level, without getting into the science, vegetables canonically are leaves, stems, roots, and seeds of plants. Fruits are a separate category, but vegetables are roots, things like sweet potato and potato. Vegetables are leaves, things like kale or collard greens or spinach or chard. Vegetables are seeds. Beans might be considered to be a vegetable by some people. So leaves, stems, roots, and seeds, seeds being seeds, nuts, grains, and beans of plants are the canonical vegetables. Now, from the perspective of a plant, think like a plant. Plants are going to put all the defense chemicals in those parts of the plant because those parts of the plant are the plants that either harvest the sun's energy via photosynthesis, that is leaves, or transport the glucose produced in the chloroplast through photosynthesis into the root systems or into the other parts of the plant for energy production, for cellular work, to make fruit, to make a seed, that is through the phloem and the xylem and the stem of the plant. And in the roots is where stored energy is in the form of starch, complex carbohydrates. So if animals eat the roots, that's going to kill the plant or damage the plant. If animals eat the seeds, that is going to destroy the plant's chances of moving its DNA to the next generation. That is where plants are putting the majority of their energy. Just like humans, we are looking to survive and reproduce primarily. Plants are trying to do the same thing. They're trying to move their DNA to the next generation always. 
So they must defend the seeds. They're going to defend the leaves because that is the energy factory of the plant. That is where the plants take the sunlight and turn it into energy. And they're going to defend the stems and the bark and those parts because that's protecting the stem. And the stem is where everything gets transported. So what is the part of the plant that a plant actually wants an animal or you or I to eat? It's the fruit. It's going to package the seeds in a fruit. Often the seeds are in a protective coating so that you can't eat them. In the case of a mango or a cherry, they're very difficult to eat, right? The seeds can be, in, can be packaged in a carapace, some sort of a protective coating. I'm trying to think of other fruit. In a pineapple, the seeds are quite small and they actually just usually get eaten with the fruit and then you digest them because you don't even chew them. These are obviously the tropical fruits that I'm exposed to in Costa Rica. Other fruits that I eat here are things like guanabana or soursop, which has large seeds, clearly not something the plant wants you to eat. Easy to eat the fruit, spit the seed out, which is a common practice uh, among humans, hunter-gatherer tribes, to eat around the seed. In watermelons here in Costa Rica, I will cut the seeds out, or if I eat the seeds, I will spit them out. So this is the intention of the plant, to get you to eat the fruit, move the seed somewhere else, or swallow the seed and end up the seed and have the seed end up in your poop in a fertile place. But plants do not want the seeds eaten. So intuitively, I think humans can understand that plants may put defense chemicals in these parts of the plants. And in fact, they do. There's a mountain of literature in this, which I won't go into in this detail, but I've talked about previously many, many times. So many of the chemicals in plants that we consider to be phytochemicals, wrongly termed phytonutrients, I don't think they're actually nutrients because they don't serve any indispensable role in the human body. They don't serve any necessary role in human biochemistry like vitamins or minerals do, or proteins or peptides or hormones do in the human body. These are not nutrients, these are phytochemicals, but so many of these phytochemicals have been sold to us as beneficial when in fact, I think that the majority of the research on them or the entirety of the research on them is neglected. It's only a myopic view of the research that is considered and that leads people to believe that they may have one beneficial effect when the other side effects, which I believe create a net negative effect of these chemicals in the human body are often ignored. This is the case of molecules like turmeric, resveratrol, other tannins, et cetera. But there is a very interesting paper that um, I will show you. It's actually a chapter in the book, I believe. Uh, it's called The Toxicology of Naturally Occurring Chemicals in Food. And they, there's at least 100 pages here of interesting discussion of chemicals that are found in our foods, chemicals that are found in basically fruits and vegetables. But as we see, as we read this paper in fruit, they are much lower concentrations than they are in the vegetables. That is the roots, stems, leaves, and seeds. But you can see here, if you're watching on YouTube, the Thanksgiving dinner menu and all of the chemical composition of the things on this menu, carrots with carotitoxin, meristocin, isoflavones, nitrate, radishes, glucosinolates, which many of you may know will inhibit absorption of iodine uh, and incorporation into the thyroid, nitrates, cherry tomatoes, um, have glycoside, which is a uh, problem, uh, tomatine, which is a clear toxin, celery has nitrates and sorolins. Sorolins appear to be able to become incorporated into the DNA at the level of our skin, perhaps leading to photosensitivity. You go on, they'll say, oh, roast turkey has heterocyclic amines and malondialdehyde. That's from the cooking process. That happens with basically everything. But um, lima beans have cyanogenic glycosides, broccoli spears, LL isothiocyanate, glucosinolates, goitrin, nitrates, baked potato, amylase inhibitors. Those are digestive enzyme inhibitors. They have arsenic, they have choconine, they have solanine. These are all chemicals that are clear defense chemicals 
in these roots. Sweet potato, more cyanogenic glycosides, furan derivatives. Um, goes on here, you know, beverages, coffee, tea, benzoapyrene, acrylamide is in that, caffeine, which I'll talk a little bit later in the podcast, why I'm not a fan of coffee, chlorogenic acid, hydrogen peroxide, methyl glyoxal, tannins, which are clear, uh, digestive enzyme inhibitors, assorted nuts, aflatoxins associated with mold in those foods. There's just, I will leave the depth of this paper to you all to read it. Phytoalexins in some food plants, alfalfa, not a good thing to eat. I've talked about that in a previous podcast. There are non-protein amino acids in alfalfa, which do lead to a lupus-like syndrome when consumed in excess in humans. P has uh, pisatin, cinnamophenols, 2-methoxychalcone. Soybeans have many xenoestrogens, or I should say phytoestrogens. Beans have phaseolin. Beans have other lectins. I mean, the list goes on and on and on here um, of the chemicals in these plants. So the question then becomes, are these chemicals benign for humans? Could their accumulation be causing issues for humans that are widely ignored by Western medicine? Western medicine doesn't think at all about diet as a cause or a fix for autoimmune or chronic disease conditions. This is one of the reasons I got interested in this work as a classically trained physician Hopefully all of you listening to this podcast know that I'm a double board certified medical doctor. I went to the University of Arizona, did my residency at the University of Washington, and I don't practice medicine seeing patients anymore. I practice medicine doing education like this for people because it's something I've learned is a louder microphone and a better way to affect more lives positively for people. That is why I do what I do as a doctor now, but within Western medical education, we are not taught to think about diet. and one of the main reasons that I do the work I do is to call attention to the hypothesis, to the notion, to the question that perhaps autoimmune conditions are triggered in some people by the accumulation of these defense chemicals. Most of you know that in my mind, the first things humans need to do to get healthy are to eliminate seed oils and to eliminate processed sugars. But many people do those things, like myself, eating a very good paleolithic diet of meat, lettuce, avocado, nuts, seeds, mushrooms, vegetables, and some fruit, and still have autoimmune conditions. In my case, I had eczema. So what happens when you eliminate seed oils and processed sugar, and you still have autoimmune conditions? You still have aching in your joints. You still have inflammatory conditions. You still have lupus, Sjogren's, eczema, psoriasis, depression, anxiety. All of these conditions can be autoimmune, can be inflammatory in nature, and so many more rheumatoid arthritis, whatever. What do you do then? Well, the first thing many people do is eliminate gluten from wheat. Well, that's great. That's a good first step. Gluten is a lectin. It's derived from the seed of wheat, which we think of as a grain, but all grains are seeds. All seeds are highly defended. So that's one little seed that people get out of their diet that helps a lot. Some people will eliminate seed. Some people will eliminate soy. That's another seed. We think of it as a bean, but it's a seed. Okay, great. We're eliminating a few of the plant foods. Some people are very savvy. They end up with autoimmune paleo diets and they will eliminate tomatoes, which are nightshades from the same family as potatoes or eggplants. Great. That's another potential trigger. That whole nightshade family can be triggering. Even fruit in the nightshade family can be triggering for humans, but that's where most people stop. I wanted to take it a step further and say, why don't you eliminate kale? Why don't you eliminate spinach? Spinach is full of oxalates. Kale is full of isothiocyanates like sulforaphane, which are going to be 
negative for your thyroid. And I think clearly net negative for humans. Why don't you eliminate all the beans because they're full of lectins. They're full of digestive enzyme inhibitors. Eliminate all the seeds, eliminate all the nuts, eliminate all of the roots, preferentially, even sweet potatoes. I know you guys love sweet potatoes and you love white potatoes, but eliminate all the grains, eliminate all the sweet potatoes, just focus on organs, meat, fruit, honey, and raw dairy, and see how your autoimmune condition does then. That is what I think is so interesting because at that point, we have really maximized bioavailability of nutrients, absolute levels of nutrients as well, and we have minimized plant toxins. Sure, there might be a few defense chemicals in some fruit, but there are much lower levels than what would be found in vegetables. And I think that in this level, the benefits of these minerals and other trace nutrients found in these fruits outweigh the potential harms of those smaller amounts of plant defense chemicals. Originally, when I was thinking of a carnivore diet, I thought all plants were bad, don't get any of the plant chemicals. I think that there's some wisdom in that by eliminating all the plant chemicals, that's great. But then you end up with no carbohydrates in your life. And that's not a good place to be as we discussed. So think about it from that perspective. What are the least toxic plant foods? What are the most nutrient dense animal foods? Those being meat and organs, basically all animal foods are very nutrient dense. If you combine those and you eliminate the vegetables, though we're told to increase the vegetables, I would say eliminate vegetables. And I will debate anyone on that and watch what happens. And the proof is in the pudding. See what happens for you. But I've seen it thousands of times over now that people will say, my eczema got better. My sleep got better. My anxiety got better. Whatever it was they were struggling with, it got much better. So one question I often get on social media is, will an animal-based diet work for condition XYZ? My answer is usually the same. Give it a try. It's a very low antigenic diet, meaning I think there are less of the things on this diet, much less of the things in this diet that are going to trigger problems for humans, these being the plant defense chemicals found in vegetables. And there are more of the nutrients that we need as humans with the focus on animal foods. And that is why I think you will thrive even more when you eliminate vegetables from your diet. I'm not going to go into all of the counter arguments in this podcast. I've addressed them in many others. I've had debates with people about vegetables, good, bad. All I would say is plant defense chemicals exist. There is a robust body of literature to at least raise the suspicion, the hypothesis, the question that they are problematic for many humans. Eliminate vegetables, that being roots, stems, leaves, and seeds, seeds being seeds, nuts, grains, and beans from your diet. Focus on organs, meat, fruit, honey, and raw dairy and see how you do. I bet you will feel much better. Often I hear people have improvements, like I said, autoimmune disease, weight loss, mood, mental clarity, libido, body composition, sleep, and GI issues. So much less gas and bloating when you get rid of those vegetables. Interestingly, people in the plant-based circles have found ways to celebrate that because the gas and bloating and GI distress with lots of vegetables in your diet are essentially unescapable. So if you can't beat them, join them, I guess is what they figured. If you know you're going to get lots of gas and bloating on a plant-based diet, you might as well celebrate it or pretend that it's good. There's nothing good about that. Believe me, when I was a vegan, I used to fart enough for 10 or 12 people. And I was a nightmare to be around. That's not a good thing for humans, not healthy. So that's why I leave out vegetables. If you guys want to look up that other paper, the Foodborne Disease Handbook, the title of the paper is again, the toxicology of naturally occurring chemicals in food. 
I think it's a great read and has a lot of resources on potential problems in these chemicals and plants. And there are many more podcasts to do on individual types of chemicals. I've done podcasts on non-protein amino acids, why I think that's problematic for humans. But the overall gist is imagine yourself in a tribe. What are the foods you're going to seek? Animals from nose to tail, seasonal fruit, colorful, sweet, honey. If you can domesticate a cow or a goat, you're probably going to milk it and that's going to get fermented. It's going to be raw. Start with that. Salt is not bad for humans either. I think lots of humans seek salt. We always do that in our uh, indigenous tribes. They always seek salt. They're using game trails to find salt licks. And when they do find salt, they will eat it with relish. And if you've ever had blood, which is something that I've had fresh for the first time recently, you realize that blood is very salty. So blood would be a good source of salt for us in fresh kills as well. So now that we've done high level on why and what an animal-based diet is, let's talk about the nuts and bolts of how to do it. Much like a carnivore diet, I think that as you start an animal-based diet, you should think about meat and protein first. That's the easiest macronutrient. By macronutrient, we mean protein, carbohydrates, fat. Let's start with protein. I think that the bottom of the protein requirements for optimal human health are one gram of protein per pound of body weight. Another way to think about this is for every 100 pounds that you weigh, think about eating one pound of meat. Now, for those who are obese, you can use your goal weight to make these calculations. For those who are at a healthy weight, you use your actual full weight. Now, one gram of protein per pound of body weight is the bottom end. I'm 165 to 170 pounds as a 5'10 male, meaning the bottom end of my protein requirements is 160 to 170 grams per day, which is 1.6 to 1.7 pounds of meat. I feel best when I eat two pounds of meat and I get a few ounces of organs per day, meaning I'm probably eating 220, if not 230 to 240 grams of protein per day as a 165 pound male. What if you're a 110 pound woman? 110 grams of protein is the bottom end for you, meaning one pound of meat, 100 grams, plus a little bit from organs will get you there. You might be a little better with more, but for most women, one gram of protein per pound of body weight is the goal. What if you are my 115 pound mother who's 72 years old? Again, critical to get enough protein for proper bone health, proper muscle and tendon health, proper resilience to injury as you age. I was just talking to my mom today and she said she can't eat a pound of meat per day. And I'm thinking, how can you not eat a pound of meat per day? It's hard for her as a 72 year old, 115, 120 pound woman to eat a pound of meat per day. But I think that her goal should be that and probably a little more. What if you are a 200 pound man? Then you're going to need, then you're going to, need to eat more protein than me probably 200 grams of protein at the minimum, maybe up to 250 or 260 per day for optimal health. Now, I was thinking about this recently and the creatine piece of this equation came into my mind and I thought it all made a lot of sense. Creatine is a molecule that is synthesized in the liver and the kidneys, but only about one gram of day of creatine is made by our body. Ideal creatine intakes for humans are probably around three to five or even upwards of five grams per day, depending on your body weight. For a 105 pound 
female, three grams of creatine per day is probably okay. 170 to 180 pound males, five grams of creatine is probably optimal. 250 gram, 250 pound males plus, you're probably looking at seven to eight grams of creatine for optimal performance. And what does creatine do? Well, it serves as a phosphate donor in the muscles. 95% of creatine is in the muscles and it serves as a phosphate repository and donor for ATP, that is our energy currency. Now, that all sounds well and good, but if you look at the actual research on the performance benefits of creatine, they are enormous. Many people would agree that there is no substance studied more than creatine and no substance which has better performance enhancing effects than creatine. This is a study titled The International Society of Sports Nutrition Position Stand, the Safety and Efficacy of Creatine Supplementation in Exercise, Sport, and Medicine. This is, I believe, from 2017 in the Journal of the International Society of Sports Nutrition, they go on to say, studies have consistently shown that creatine supplementation increases intramuscular creatine concentrations, which may help explain the observed improvement in high intensity exercise performance, leading to greater training adaptations. In addition to athletic and exercise improvement, research has shown that creatine supplementation may enhance post-exercise recovery, injury prevention, thermoregulation, rehabilitation, concussion and or spinal cord neuroprotection. Additionally, a number of clinical applications of creatine supplementation have been studied involving neurodegenerative diseases, e.g. muscular dystrophy, Parkinson's, Huntington's disease, diabetes, osteoarthritis, fibromyalgia, aging, brain and heart ischemia, adolescent depression, and pregnancy. These studies provide a large body of evidence that creatine can not only improve exercise performance, but can play a role in preventing and or reducing the severity of injury, enhancing rehabilitation from injuries, and helping athletes tolerate heavy training loads. I don't know how much more you could sing the praises of creatine based on that abstract. This study goes on to show the creatine phosphate shuttle system, the essentially the physiology of creatine in the mitochondria and in the cytosol of cells moving phosphate groups around, being donors for phosphate, and talks about muscle total creatine stores and compares our sad friends vegetarians with normal creatine loading or creatine loading with, the, with or without carbohydrates and protein from a certain study that is noted here in the graphic shown on the video portion of this podcast. But as you can see, vegetarians average around 100 millimole per kilogram dry weight creatine Normal people, quote unquote normal, who I would also define as deficient, are about 120 millimole. Creatine loading is 140. That's where you want to be. And then creatine loading with carbohydrate or carbohydrate and protein is even higher at 155. But I think there's a good argument to be made that the higher you can get your total creatine stores in your muscle, the better. You want to be at 140 millimole. How do you get there? Like I said, you can do 30 days of creatine loading with three grams per day for a 100 to 110 pound individual. You can do five grams per day for somebody that's about my size, 165 pounds. Or if you're around 240, 250 pounds, you might need to go to seven or eight grams of creatine per day. Well, think about this. When we are imagining what the optimal amount of protein intake for humans is, isn't it interesting that one kilogram, that is 2.2 pounds of meat per day, is five grams of creatine. So even though I don't do creatine loading, 
I'm getting five grams of creatine per day by eating essentially one kilogram of meat from mostly meat and some organs per day in my diet. I'm already maximizing my creatine stores by getting to that a little more than one gram of protein per pound of body weight threshold. If you are much below that, you are falling short of optimal creatine stores and compromising performance, recovery, potential rehabilitation in the setting of an injury, and potentially compromising long-term longevity and aging. Optimal creatine levels should be at the center of every healthy diet. Why supplement with creatine when there is a clear indication here that humans benefit from eating around one kilogram of meat and organs per day if you are around 170 pounds as a male. If you are a lighter female or a lighter male, maybe three is fine and you can eat less, but it all scales to the slightly more than one gram of protein per pound of body weight per day metric that I mentioned earlier. The ideal for most people is probably 1.2 grams of protein per pound of body weight. Again, as I mentioned, if you are obese and looking to lose weight, think about your goal body weight. Say you're a 300 pound male and you're looking to lose 80 pounds, then you are essentially eating creatine as a 220 pound male, which would be slightly more than five grams per day. And again, using the formula I mentioned earlier, one gram of protein per pound of body weight will give you slightly more than two pounds of meat per day, which will give you that amount of creatine. How interesting is that? that it's kind of built into nature. And now we know retrospectively that eating that amount of meat also optimizes your creatine levels. If you had any doubts about creatine, also consider the fact that when vegetarians, who as we heard and saw, have lower levels of creatine in their muscles, are supplemented with creatine, their memories get better. <laughs> Essentially, they become smarter by many definitions of the term smartness or intelligence by being able to recall things better when they are given creatine to attain normal or what I would consider to be optimal levels of creatine. So most vegetarians on low creatine diets are functioning suboptimally because the mitochondria in their brain are creatine deficient. If that is not the most clear argument that vegetarian and low protein diets are suboptimal for humans, I'm not sure what better argument you could make. So common today is the en vogue zeitgeist, the en vogue paradigm that we should avoid meat for longevity. But these are entirely myopic perspectives that ignore the benefits of meat like creatine. And if you look at people promoting these diets, they're often pretty soft and they don't look very good with their shirts off, which is why they never wear their shirts. Incidentally, people often ask me why I don't wear my shirt in my videos on Instagram, et cetera. On YouTube, I'll usually put it on for you guys because this is professional, right? This is my super professional green t-shirt on YouTube. But on Instagram, why don't I ever wear a shirt? Well, I was recently hanging out with my friend Liver King and I thought his answer to this one was the best. So I will piggyback on his answer, which is essentially, you can't buy my physique. You can't buy a muscular, lean physique. As I've said before, I'm 44, soon to be 45. I take no drugs and no exogenous hormones. I've shown this to you guys in the past in my labs. I'm going to do another blood work soon. But I have a muscular and lean physique, especially for a 45-year-old male. You can't buy this. I don't wear a shirt 
to show you that the proof is in the pudding. This is real. Show me a vegan that looks this good with their shirt off, who's eating low protein, who we can confirm isn't taking drugs or hormones or using synthetic protein powders made from concentrates of proteins that are going to mimic amino acid profiles found in meat and also supplementing with creatine, right? I don't have to supplement with anything because I eat organs and meat and fruit and honey and raw dairy and I'm getting the things I need. Show me a vegan who doesn't supplement with anything who looks this good with their shirt off. It doesn't exist. The vegans who do not supplement anything usually look bloated and are sarcopenic, which is a medical term for loss of muscle mass in the extremities and concentration of some adiposity in the core. That's just a fact, guys. I don't know what else to say. So protein, first macronutrient to focus on on an animal-based diet. Second macronutrient, fat. You don't really have to worry much about fat. If you're doing dairy, do it raw and do full fat dairy. When you're eating meat, use the fattiest meat you can get. I should have mentioned earlier when we were talking about protein that I prefer grass-fed, grass-finished beef. Some people will say, that's too expensive. Bullshit. <laughs> the beef that I eat is grass-fed, grass-finished, regeneratively raised, and it's $6 a pound. You're telling me you don't have $12 a day for your meat? I'm going to do an Instagram post about how I eat animal-based, the best animal-based I can, organic fruit, local glyphosate-free honey, local raw goat's milk, and grass-fed meat for less than $25 a day. If you don't have $25 a day to spend on your food, we have bigger problems because your priorities are out of line. What is a better investment in your health? There is nothing expensive on an animal-based diet. I do not eat ribeyes almost ever. They're a special occasion. 95% of the time, Carnivore MD eats grass-fed ground beef. That is the ticket to an affordable animal-based diet. Get good grass-fed ground beef, get a reasonable grill, get some good salt, put some honey on the ground beef, put an egg yolk on the ground beef. It's delicious. You don't need anything else. That is the affordable way to do an animal-based diet. Ground beef, choose the highest quality you can. I even heard from someone that Walmart was selling grass-fed organic ground beef for $4.50 a pound. If we trust them, perhaps questionable, it's a pretty good deal. $9 for two pounds of grass-fed ground beef. But get the fattiest you can. Don't you dare get that 93.7 bullshit in the store. Get the fatty ground beef. That's what you want. Or if you're eating a ribeye and celebrating, or you want to eat ribeye every day, get a fatty ribeye. Get fat in your meat. Get fat in your egg yolks. Get fat in your full-fat dairy, and you'll have plenty of fat. If you want to add more fat, use a grass-fed butter, preferably raw. You'll get plenty of fat. Your body will tell you when you need more fat, basically. I don't use any cooking oil because I cook on a grill, and I use fat in my meat. I use 80-20 ground beef. I have this organic, I have this raw goat's milk, which has fat. I would estimate I'm getting 150 grams of fat per day. If you feel better with more, feel free to supplement with some butter or something. Think about that range though. Depending how much you weigh, one gram of fat per pound of body weight per day is a good basic metric to start. You can go up or down, adding things like tallow or butter for extra fat, but make sure your meat is fatty. We've already covered protein and fat, guys. What's next? Carbohydrates. I showed the study earlier. 
of why you want to include carbohydrates in your diet. Insulin action at the level of the kidney is essential for sodium and therefore potassium, magnesium, and calcium balance. There's no way around it. You cannot supplement with electrolytes. You cannot supplement your way out of a ketogenic diet with electrolytes and maintain electrolyte levels that are normal or good for humans. It just doesn't work. Don't fear carbohydrates. I've done a whole podcast on fruit and honey and why you shouldn't fear them, but I'll show you here in a moment. What I do is I basically eat fruit and honey depending. What I do is eat fruit and honey based on my activity level for the day. I'm very grateful to be able to surf two to three hours every morning as part of my morning ritual here in I'm very grateful to be able to surf two to three hours every morning as part of my morning ritual here in Costa Rica. That means I get a lot of activity. Throughout the day, I'll do pull-ups, I'll do push-ups, I'll do dips, I'll do sissy squats, I'll do reverse Nordics, I'll do Nordics, I'll hit the punching bag. I maintain a low level of activity throughout the day. Some days I'll actually put weights on the barbell and do front squats or overhead press. Some days I'll skateboard in the afternoon. I don't do massive muscle workouts because my main focus is mobility. It's ligament and tendon strength, and it's being in the ocean and surfing and keeping a good tan. But I do like to move throughout the day between breaks and work. And so I'll use my home gym, which is essentially a squat rack, a punching bag, some yoga mats, a kettlebell or two, a barbell, and a bunch of plates for it. That's it. Pull-ups, dips, et cetera. So I talked about that. I've done a little bit online about my workouts. I can do a whole podcast on my workouts if people want. I don't think there's much magic in my workouts. Maybe the magic is the fact that I don't overdo the workouts, and I try very hard not to overtrain and to focus on what my goals are, which I said is longevity in surfing, which is my favorite way to move in nature ever. My main goals are to maintain longevity, resilience in my surfing, because it's my favorite way to move in nature. So why should you not fear fruit? Well, consider these two studies, which I have spoken about before, but are so cool that they are worth repeating over and over and over. I have done a whole podcast on this. The effect of two energy-restricted diets, a low fructose diet versus a moderate natural fructose diet, natural fructose being fruit on weight loss and metabolic syndrome parameters, a randomized controlled trial. This is not observational. This is randomized control. This is by Rick Johnson. Okay, so what they say here, each intervention diet was associated with significant weight loss compared to baseline, meaning that a low fructose diet overall or a moderate natural fructose diet, what they did in the study was they took out all synthetic, quote unquote, sources of fructose, high fructose corn syrup, sources from people's diets. Everyone improved. In one group, they allowed them to include moderate amounts of fructose per day, leading to between 400 and 600 calories per day from fruit, and they look to see what happens. Guess what? Eliminating processed fructose was the main mover. When people added back in moderate amounts of fruit, there was no decline in the benefits. In fact, what they say is weight loss was higher in the moderate natural fructose group than the low fructose group. Compared with baseline, each intervention diet was associated with significant improvements in the secondary outcomes, those being symptoms, those being, those being metabolic syndrome parameters, insulin resistance, et cetera. This study is a good exoneration of fruit. And you can see it here. 
Differences in diet compositions at baseline and among intervention groups, there were 480 calories from fruits in the 1,500 kcal group, 540 calories from fruit in the moderate fructose diet, 1,800 kcal group, and the same 540 calories from fruit in the 2,000 calorie diet. Now, all of these diets are much lower than what I do. I'll talk in a moment about how many calories I do, but you can see that 540 calories from fruit, fruit is fructose and glucose, but all of those carbohydrates are four calories per gram. You're looking at over 100 grams of fruit in these people. And there was no decline in the benefits, that being weight loss or improvements in metabolic syndrome parameters. And in the moderate natural fructose group, there was a decline in uric acid, which is just as big as the no processed fructose group, meaning that 100 grams of fruit per day did not raise uric acid one bit in these people. Do not fear fruit. This is a randomized controlled trial showing this. And I've seen it myself in my own diet many times over. I'm now eating probably 200, 250 grams of carbohydrates from fruit and honey. My uric acid remains below four milligrams per deciliter. I do not have insulin resistance, diabetes, or obesity, clearly. My fasting insulin remains lower than three. My C-peptide less than 0.5. Show me any physician who's an author of that study that can claim those metrics. I doubt it. One more study to just quickly show you the exoneration of fruit. The effects of red-orange juice intake on endothelial function and inflammatory markers in adult subjects with increased cardiovascular risk Many will say, okay, fruit is all right, but don't do fruit juice. Well, here's red-orange juice that shows seven-day consumption. It improves endothelial function and reduces inflammation in non-diabetic subjects with increased cardiovascular risk. So why is this red-orange juice so bad for humans? I think that basically the key here is that processed fructose is not good for humans probably too much of that ends up passing through the gut and ending up in the liver, but that the gut has many mechanisms to protect the liver from excess fructose, especially when it's in the form of fruit, and that fruit is quite healthy for humans. Imagine that, an evolutionarily consistent thing. So much of this is intuitive and falls in line with what we would have done naturally as humans in the quote-unquote wild. We would have sought fruit, we would have eaten honey, we would have killed animals and eaten them from nose to tail, our uric acids would have been very low. We would have been virile, horny, healthy, and happy. And there were no vegetables in sight most of the time, at least not with the Hadza or many other indigenous cultures that I've studied in the literature. But I visited the Hadza in person. I can tell you, not a lot of vegetables there at all. So do not fear fruit. I'm at 250 to 200 grams a day, depending how much I do. You can see on my Instagram and other social medias, actual pictures and videos of what I eat in very clear detail. I wanna spell this out for people. So those are the three categories of macros, guys. Protein, fat, carbohydrates. The foods I compose my diet of are organs, meat, fruit, honey, raw dairy. I eat maybe half an ounce of liver per day, a few ounces per week. I think that's a optimal dose for humans. I have multiple ounces of heart when I can get it. I have a few ounces of testicle when I can get it. When I can't get it, I'll use desiccated organs from heart and soil supplements. Those are freeze-dried and there's all kinds of good organs in there that fill in the gaps. Two pounds plus of meat per day, like I talked about, one gram of protein per pound of body weight to 1.25 grams of protein per pound of body weight. 
I let fat happen with the meat, seeking out the fattiest meat that I can get. I don't fear fruit. I have pineapple, mango, banana, plantain, guanabana, all kinds of fruit here in Costa Rica. I'm in an equatorial zone, so I'm lucky. I also eat papaya. And if you think it's expensive, look for the video on Instagram about how I do this for less than $25 a day. It's not rocket science. The secret is ground beef. It's easy. And then I have raw dairy. I have maybe half a liter of raw dairy per day from raw goat's milk that I fermented a kefir. That's what I do as a human. I salt my food moderately. I'm trying to think if there are any other details there that fill in the gaps, but a few tablespoons of honey for me per day. So how do I eat? How do I spread it throughout the day? My schedule works this way. I get up 5.30, move a little bit, get some water, eat maybe a quarter of a papaya and a glass of goat's milk before I go surfing. Then I surf for two to three hours, come back at 9.30 in the morning and eat a big breakfast, which you will see every day on my Instagram stories or on my Instagram feed. It's meat, it's organs, it's fruit, it's raw dairy, it's honey, simple as that. Then throughout the day, I usually don't snack much. Maybe in the afternoon, I'll have a little bit of fruit a lot of days, I don't have any snacks. Today, I haven't had any snacks since breakfast, which was at 10 a.m. And then around four o'clock, as soon as I finish recording this podcast today, I'm going to eat my dinner. It's going to be a repeat of the morning. It's going to be another pound of grass-fed ground beef. It's going to be some fruit, some honey, and some raw dairy. That's how I do it. So I do maybe 2.25 meals a day or 2.5 meals a day. I don't eat two meals a day because I have that little meal in the morning and I have but I have less than three solid meals per day. What do I not eat? I do not do coffee. In the beginning, I was a little bit shy. I was timid and sheepish about saying this because I knew that so many of you would get triggered and would not listen to my stuff because you wanted your coffee. But you know what? Damn it. You guys are not doing yourselves any favor with that freaking coffee, so get rid of it. I've done an Instagram reel about this. I just want to show you some evidence that caffeine is harmful for humans. I see reactive hypoglycemia. I see people having problems with autoimmune issues with coffee. It's a roasted plant seed. There are often pesticides. There are mold toxins. There is acrylamide in the coffee. Last but not least, there's caffeine, which is problematic for humans, guys. Caffeine ingestion before an oral glucose tolerance test impairs blood glucose management in men with type 2 diabetes. Guess what? Caffeine worsens insulin sensitivity. Metabolic and hormonal effects of caffeine randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled crossover trial shows that insulin levels were significantly higher, which means more insulin resistance after caffeine intake relative to placebo. The HOMA-IR index of insulin sensitivity was reduced by 35%. That is worsening insulin sensitivity by caffeine. So again, this is showing caffeine worsens insulin sensitivity Systematic review of randomized controlled trials of the effects of caffeine and caffeinated drinks on blood glucose concentrations and insulin sensitivity in people with diabetes mellitus. Evidence indicates a negative effect of caffeine intake on blood glucose control in individuals with type 2 diabetes as replicated in a single trial in gestational diabetes. There are some early indications of a reduced duration and improved awareness of hypoglycemia in type 1 diabetes with caffeine, but I do not think the benefits outweigh the risks. How about just eating a animal-based diet if you have type 1 diabetes or a lower carbohydrate diet if you have type 1 diabetes, which is a special case, and that will control your hypoglycemia pretty well. I've heard it over and over and over. I don't think you should use caffeine. Get rid of your coffee. You will feel better. Trust me, you will. It's a burned plant seed, no coffee. What do I drink? 
I drink coconut water and I drink water. What kind of water do I use? Interesting question. I got a countertop reverse osmosis filter here in Costa Rica. It works great. The water's delicious and it's pretty darn pure. So I had hesitations about a Berkey in the past. Not a huge fan of that anymore. Get a countertop reverse osmosis filter or a under the sink reverse osmosis. You'll get plenty of minerals in your foods. I don't think you even need to remineralize it. And it's very clean. That's, I think, the best you could possibly do. I like Mountain Valley water. I've done a whole podcast on waters and contamination in the past as well. If you want to get spring water, Mountain Valley is great. Countertop or under the sink reverse osmosis is amazing as well. End of story. I don't have any affiliations with any countertop RO brands. So let you guys do the research for yourself on which one you choose. But it's been a game changer for me here. Super easy. Don't even have to put it under the sink, though I think that it's easier long-term to put it under the sink. So that's how I get my water. I drink that in coconut water. And depending on the quality of my surfing for the day, sometimes I drink some seawater, though I try not to do that too often. The last piece of this equation to kind of wrap it all up is, do I eat in an eating window? And my answer is yes, sort of. I used to think eight-hour eating windows were ideal. Now I think I'm not sure I want to eat in that much of a compressed eating window. And I'll show you why. I have my first bite of food at about 6 a.m. I have my last bite of food often at 4.30, some days at five. That's an 11-hour eating window. I'm fine with that. Maybe a 10-hour eating window is better, but an eight-hour eating window is pretty hard for most people. And studies like this one give me pause. So it's difficult to sort out the ultimate effects of this, but this is an eight-week time-restricted feeding, which is 16-8, meaning 16 hours of fast, eight hours of eating, basal metabolism, maximal strength, body composition, inflammation, cardio risk factors, cardiovascular risk factors in resistance-trained males. So these are healthy males. And what you see is when these same people ate an equivalent number of calories in an eight-hour window for two months, a lot of things got better, inflammation, et cetera. But the total and free testosterone and IGF-1 went down. And to wrap my head around that, I think, hmm, is that a good thing or is it a bad thing? We don't really know about androgen receptor sensitivity. Could that have changed? May it all be a wash as total and free testosterone go down? I don't know. Anabolic parameters went down and I'm interested in maximizing those at this time in my life, probably my whole life. You also see that T3 went down, triiodothyronine, but no significant changes were detected in TSH. Well, you see the same thing on a ketogenic diet where T3 goes down, but TSH doesn't go down. And for a while, I thought that wasn't a big deal, but now I think I kind of want my T3 to be high. I want my thyroid to be working well. I want my metabolism to be working well. So I still have concerns about an eight-hour eating window. Now, granted, there's some variation in terms of what time in the day this is. Maybe people would not have had as much decline in their testosterone if they had done an earlier eating window. They say that subjects in the normal diet group consumed 100% of their energy needs divided into three meals consumed at 8 a.m., 1 p.m., and 8 p.m. Well, that's a really big eating window. <laughs> Maybe that's affecting their sleep negatively. Who knows? But the eight-hour but the eight-hour window, they had meals at 1 p.m., 4 p.m., and 8 p.m. Mm, I don't know. I would have liked to have seen what would happen with their testosterone if they moved that eight-hour eating window to the 
beginning of the day, which is where I would prefer it. I think that lower, I think that later window at 8 p.m. can interfere with sleep. So it's hard to say. I would love to see this moved into the beginning of the day and see what would happen here. But I'm not strict about my eating window because I don't want to decrease my testosterone. If you want to do intermittent fasting, all I would say is check your testosterone religiously as male or female. And if you're a female, check your other hormones and watch your cycle and see how it all works together. Don't let intermittent fasting dogmatism interfere with your hormones in a negative way. Because at that level, I think you've gone beyond the point of benefit to the point of net harm in all of this for us as humans. I'll wrap up with a few words about this. People will often ask, can females do this diet? Absolutely. Absolutely females can do this diet. I know many women who thrive on an animal-based diet. What's different? Not a whole lot. The protein requirements will be based on body weight for men and women. I think based on cycle throughout the month, women may crave more carbohydrates in the luteal phase. Go with that, eat more carbohydrates, but try to get the minimum amount of protein even in the luteal phase of your cycle if you are a cycling female. Otherwise, it's about the same. A little bit of liver, some other organs, fatty meat, salt, raw dairy if you like it, moderate amounts of carbohydrates from fruit and honey, depending on what you're doing in the day. This diet works great for females. Why wouldn't it? This is a human diet, not a male diet or a female diet. It's a human diet. It's a homo sapiens diet. It's an evolutionarily consistent diet. It's an animal-based diet. Hopefully this podcast helps lay it out for you guys. I know I rambled a little bit in the beginning. I gave a lot of high-level science. I didn't go too deep in the weeds on this one. I wanted it to be a reasonable length podcast, even though it's probably a little long for most people. It just lays out how to do an animal-based diet so that many of your questions will be answered by this. How I eat, what I eat, when I eat, when I fast, if I do, it's all there. I don't worry about food combining. I don't think fruit and meat have any problems being combined with humans. That's too granular. And I just think it's, it's wimpy to worry about that. Your digestion will be just fine. So that's it for this podcast. Like I said, it will live on the carnivoremd.com page where we will be building a start here resource for animal-based diets in the near future. So if it's not there when you go to look, check back in a few weeks because we're building it right now so that anyone who has questions about how to build an animal-based diet will be able to refer back to this podcast and start from there. You can always shoot me a message in my DMs. I try to get to some, but there's too many for all of them. And I hope you guys are thriving. And now it's time for me to go eat some dinner, get some evening sun, walk on the beach, maybe do a little bit of movement, maybe jump in the ocean and probably go to sleep early so I can get up and surf tomorrow. 